Well, Cedar Street Baptist Church, good morning. I love you so very much. I really do. It's a joy of my heart to be with you here this morning. Oh, I come here this morning uh, stirred by the Lord, and I hope that He'll continue to stir us. I think He's on the move. I know He is. And if you're just joining us, or it's been a little while since you've been here to kind of catch you up, we're in the midst of a sermon series. We're coming to the end of this sermon series. On There's some silent amens happening in the pew right now. Uh, we're in a series entitled Return to the Upper Room as we've been leaning in closely to hear the very heartbeat of Jesus from his last words at his last supper. We've been looking at John 13, up now today beginning John 17, at 155 verses and five full chapters. And this part of Holy Scripture, probably more so than any other part of the Bible, we hear the heart of our Lord and Savior. And we are coming to a monumental chapter as we're going to be looking at John 17, verses 1 through 5. And the title of our message here this morning is, This is Eternal Life. This is Eternal Life. So let me just say this. Let's say that you and I were walking with the rest of the disciples following Jesus for three years of earthly ministry. And you had one chance one chance to have Jesus all to yourself and you could ask him to teach you one thing, what would it be and why? Now, you and I may have to pray about what that would be, but for the disciples, they walked with him for three years. They saw him miraculously bring healing. They saw him take a few loaves and fish and turn it into a feast for 5,000. They saw Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle as Jesus was proving that he was in fact the Son of God. But they didn't ask any question more than this. Jesus, how do you pray like that? Teach us to pray. Now, Matthew 6 is God's, or Jesus' response to that specific question, teach us to pray. But John 17, boy, this is, this is the pinnacle because this is watching us, watching in closely and hearing Jesus pray himself. Now, I want you to think about the, the great prayers of the Bible. If I asked you, uh, for those of you that love God's word and have been reading it for years, what's your favorite prayer of the Bible? For some of you, it may be 1 Kings 18 as Elijah calls down fire on Mount, Mount Carmel. It may be Jonah chapter 2 as Jonah prays for deliverance from the belly of the great fish. It may be 1 Samuel 1 as Hannah's praying for God to overcome her barren womb and give her a child that would eventually become the prophet Samuel. Or maybe it's Psalm 51, the prayer of David of confession because of his adultery with Bathsheba. All those prayers are great. But can I say something? I believe that what we're going to look at today is the beginning of what is the Mount Everest of all prayers in the entire Bible, you should know that you know that you know that John 17 stands above because Jesus Christ himself is praying and showing us his very heart. And as we lean in to hear this today and for the next few weeks as we finish up this series, what we're gonna hear today is Jesus, Jesus telling us exactly what eternal life is all about. So what's the big idea as we hear these opening words from this prayer of Christ in John 17, 1 through 5? In one sentence, Jesus prays for us to fully understand and experience his offer of eternal life. Jesus prays for us to fully understand and experience his offer of eternal life. 
What is eternal life? Well, Jesus is going to tell us a lot about it in his prayerful words. So would you join me if you're interested in finding out more about eternal life? Join me by turning to the book of John, fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab the pew Bible in front of you or beside you. We'll be on page 1073 in your pew Bible. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word. We are in John chapter 17, starting at verse 1, working our way through verse 5, this beautiful prayer of Jesus Christ. Hear God's word to us through his servant John, inspired of the Holy Spirit, letting us listen into the words of Jesus himself. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let us pray. Oh, Father, as we listen in and we hear these powerful, precious words of Jesus that he lifted up to you in the upper room, let us not miss a word. Let us not miss a single word, Lord, because what he had for the disciples, he has also for us. And this is for us to know eternal life, eternal life with you because of your son. So Lord, I pray that you would remove the distractions in this room today. All that's on our mind and heart, there's so much happening, but Lord, just bring us to a screeching halt. Help us to have simple, quiet hearts, minds, and open ears to hear the words of Christ so that we would know eternal life by knowing you through your Son. Be with us now, I pray, in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible, maybe some of you are holding the Pew Bible, most of you that have a Bible, you see in the Bible subheadings. Now those subheadings are not inspired by God, but they're helpful. There's things that scholars have used to help us to think thought by thought through chapters of the Bible. Most of you that have a Bible would see that John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer. And I'm not saying that that title is wrong. I'm saying that it's incomplete. It's incomplete. Here's why. When we talk about Jesus as our high priest, we're talking about Jesus interceding for us in prayer. Jesus going to the Father on our behalf. And is he doing that in this prayer? Yes, he is. Absolutely he is. But that's not the only thing he's doing. He's doing much, much more. In fact, a lot of people believe that Matthew chapter 6, the famous Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You guys know the prayer. Most of you do. That should probably not be called the Lord's Prayer. That should be called the model prayer because Jesus is showing us how we should pray. But John 17 really should be called the Lord's Prayer because Jesus is praying himself and he's bringing us in and he's letting us hear his very heart and he's praying about a lot. He's uh, 
in this prayer, he's giving us the exaltation of God, the proclamation of the truth, the prophecy of the future. And yes, he is interceding and instructing us as his disciples. He's preparing us to understand the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. He's doing this all in one prayer. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see what Jesus did during his three years of earthly ministry, what you will see is when he's with his disciples, he offers up brief prayers. But when he wants to have an extended time with the Father, he gets alone. The Bible says that he separated himself to lonely places. He went to places that were dark and quiet. He got up in the early hours of the morning and he had extended communion with the Father. John chapter 17 that we start looking at today is the one time that Jesus does not get alone to have an extended conversation with the Father. No, he does it right in front of the disciples because he wants you, he wants me, and he wanted them to know his heart, to know his heart. And so as we look at the first five verses, the beginning of this prayer, I believe that he is he's welcoming us into this atmosphere of eternal life. He wants us to know exactly what eternal life is all about and as we encounter and explore eternal life, I want to look at three aspects of eternal life that I believe he is revealing in this prayer. I want to look at the giver, the gift, and the guidelines of eternal life according to these beautiful, prayerful words of Christ. So let's look, number one, at the giver of eternal life that Jesus tells us about in verses one through two. Again, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, I think the answer to this is pretty obvious. Who is the giver of eternal life? The answer is Jesus. Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says in Matthew 28, before the Great Commission, he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And if you needed any more information, there's one specific passage that is so powerful, it would take weeks to walk through. I'm just going to read it and proclaim it, and the Spirit will do what he wants. But Colossians chapter 1, now hear this, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, this leaves no mystery as to who gives eternal life. It says, he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's more important than everything he created. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So let me just summarize that. That's a, there's a lot happening there in five verses. Life begins and ends with Jesus Christ. Now, when we think of Jesus, we think about him in his human form. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God that existed before time and space. You and I were created by Jesus. We are redeemed by Jesus. We are sustained by Jesus. 
We are ruled by Jesus, and one day we will be judged by Jesus Christ. And it's laughable, it's laughable that atheists and agnostics and hyper-intellectuals want to take Jesus, rip him out of this context, and put him in a group of good moral teachers and world religious leaders. But the very people that insult Jesus are using breath that Jesus gave them to do it. And there will come a time where you will not have to hear it from a preacher. Jesus Christ himself will return. And the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some to eternal paradise, others to eternal judgment. But life begins and ends with Jesus. He is the only one that has authority to do so. That's what he says in verse 2, that he's been given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. He's much more than a good moral teacher. Again, he's the creator, redeemer, sustainer, ruler, and judge of the world. And when he says, to all you have given him, I want to give you an image. If you and I are believers, we're part of the church. And the church is the bride of Christ. Now, in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, when Adam needed a helpmate, what did God do? He put Adam to sleep. And out of the rib of Adam, he made Eve. And then he took the woman and took the man and presented the woman to the man as a gift so that Adam could look at her and say, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He gave Eve to Adam as a gift, as a bride. We are the bride of Christ, and the Father is giving us to the Son as a gift. Every time you go to a wedding, I just want to say whether you know this or not, there's plenty of atheists in the world that get married, but the wedding is a template of Scripture. The bride coming down in white is the church being made pure by the blood of Jesus. And the father presenting the bride to the groom is God the father presenting the church to Jesus. And that's what's gonna happen at the marriage supper of the lamb. And don't you ever go to a wedding the rest of your life and not think about the gospel. That's exactly what it is. But the one who gives us that life, the one who gives us that opportunity, the one that we're gonna be married to for eternity it is Jesus Christ. He is the giver of eternal life. That's number one. Let's look at number two. What about the gift of eternal life? Okay, so it comes from Jesus, but what is it? Well, Jesus, who has the authority to define it, tells us in verse three, he says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, because Jesus is the author and giver of life, he's the one who can define it. And it's interesting how he defines it. He doesn't define it as just something that you have or a place that you go. It's a person that you know and that you are with. Eternal life is a person. It's a relationship with the creator who loved you and who has redeemed you by his blood. All right, life and Jesus, they go together to eternal life is to have Christ. You know, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He, life and Jesus go together. 
To have true life that lasts forever is to have a a personal, abiding, trusting, faith-based, soul-level relationship with the one who loves you. Eternal life is having Jesus Christ. And through Christ, knowing God the Father and being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Knowing God, again, it's eternal, it's soul level, reconciliation in a relationship of abiding love. And by the way, it begins when you get saved. It begins when you get saved. It doesn't begin when he comes to to take us home or it doesn't begin when he comes to make all things new at his second coming. No, it begins the moment you get saved. Uh, John Ortberg, one of my favorite pastors and authors, the last book that he published about two years ago, the title is Eternity is Now in Session. Eternity starts right now. What's happening inside of your soul is eternity is unfolding before you. How do I know that? Because if you're a Christian, when you die, what God is starting inside of you right now is just going to continue to happen for all of eternity. If you're abiding in Jesus Christ and you're growing in your love for him, that love is just going to be magnified when you're in his presence. If you're becoming more and more like Christ and he's changing your your thoughts, your words, your actions, and your attitudes, that's just going to continue as you are glorified and given a brand new body. You already are living in eternity right now, but you're having to live that out here in this broken world in preparation of what's to come. But make no mistake about it. You are living eternal life if you have Jesus Christ right now. This idea of eternal life is not just intellectual, it's relational. It's relational. I ought to be able to say to you, are you a Christian? And your answer is not, I pray to prayer. Your answer is not, I belong to a church. Your answer is, I know him. I know Jesus. And can I tell you this, as your pastor and friend, I don't know Jesus like I want to know him, but I know him. And I talk to him a lot. In fact, even last night, before I, I couldn't go to sleep. I don't know if, if it was just God stirring my heart about this or or the Georgia Southern beat Nebraska. I don't know what it was that I couldn't sleep. Uh, and I, I, just, I just said, Jesus, I, I, I got, I've got to have more of you. I've got to experience more of your presence. I've got to have my heart more stirred in your company. I've got to have more intimacy with you. And I've got to learn to trust you more. And I've got to find my identity in you. I've got to bear more fruit for your kingdom. I don't know him like I want to know him, but I know him. Do you know him? Do you talk to him? Do you confess sin to him? Do you trust him for the bills that are sitting on your coffee table? Do you trust him with the strength to get through whatever the doctor says? Do you trust him with loved ones who are soon to depart and you may not see them again until the kingdom? Do you trust that you are going to see them again? And it's going to be perfect. If you have Christ, you have eternal life. He's given it to you as a gift And yes, eternity is now in session because you have a relationship with him that will last forever. That's number two, the gift of eternal life. So we've seen the giver and the gift, but how did all this happen? How do you and I receive eternal life? What did Jesus do for us? Well, let's look third at the guidelines of eternal life. All right, verses four through five. I glorified you on earth This is key right here. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, here's the key. Stop and think about this for just a second. If I was to ask you, 
what did Jesus do to earn your salvation? The answer that I get more than any other answer is he died on the cross for my sins. And let me say this very clearly, that's half the answer. If I ask you, how are you saved? And you say to me, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, you get a failing grade because it's half of what he did. The first half of what he did, I'm just being honest with you, it's a burden that I have. It's something I never hear people talk about. You say, well, Bo, where are you going with this? Listen to me. Look at this passage. Look at verse four. He says, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He didn't even take the cross yet, and he said that. So obviously, there was important work for him to do before he took the cross, or the cross meant nothing. What is it that Jesus had to do? Please hear me as clearly as you've heard me this entire message, because every time I ask somebody, what is the gospel, no one answers this. Jesus had to be perfect for you before he could take the cross to take the punishment for you. Jesus had to live your life for you because when God gave you the opportunity to live it yourself, you and I messed it up. Jesus had to be perfect in every single way to earn your perfection. Here's what I mean. Historians believe that Jesus lived for 33 years. Here's what that means. Jesus became an infant because when you were an infant, you sinned against God. So he was perfect on your behalf. Jesus grew to be an adolescent and a teenager because when you were a teenager, you sinned against God. But he was perfect on your behalf. And Jesus became a grown man and was perfect in ways that you are not as an adult right now so that you could be perfect in, in, the, in the presence of the Father. How did he do that? Well, Jesus... As a morally perfect being, as the ideal human being, you got to get this. He never had a sinful thought. He never spoke a sinful word. He never committed a sinful action. He never even had a sinful attitude of heart. He was complete and total moral perfection for 33 years, and he did it so that you, by faith, receive his perfect record. Because without it, you're not getting to heaven. You say, why? Why am I not getting to heaven? Because God is morally perfect. He's holy and unblemished, and he will not stand the presence of sin, but yet he's loving, and he wants sinners to be with him. And the only way to reconcile that tension of holiness that doesn't compromise sin, but love that wants to be around sinners, is to send his son to be human and be perfect for us. And we receive that perfection. And then when Jesus finished living perfectly, now we get to chapter two and he takes the cross. And because he's perfect, he's the final perfect sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why is it that we have not continued the Old Testament tradition of sacrificing bulls and goats and rams? Because Jesus was the one and final sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. There's no need for any more blood to be shed. His blood is sufficient for your salvation and for mine. And Jesus said he accomplished the work. He accomplished the work. You know, if you want to know the moral standard of God that you're going to be judged by when you die, just remember Charlton Heston. Okay, the Ten Commandments. 
When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses as he came down Mount Sinai, God was revealing to the world and to his covenant people his moral standard. And can I tell you this without having to guess? Every single one of you in this room, including me, has broken all Ten Commandments. You say, well, Bo, how do you know? Well, in case you, you, you didn't think just by reading the Ten Commandments that you've broken them, when Jesus was here on the earth, he took it a step further and started talking about what's really at stake. So for instance, he said that when, when the commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery, he said, if you've ever had lust for someone who is not your spouse, you're already an adulterer. Whoops. That would include pretty much everybody. All right, and then he says, if you've ever bared false witness, if you've ever lied, all right, if you've ever had anger in your heart, you're a murderer. All of us, guilty, guilty, guilty. And you say, man, nobody can live up to that standard. That's the point. Nobody is good enough to know God, have a relationship with Him, and go to heaven. Nobody's good enough. I'm not good enough. You're not good enough. Billy Graham's not good enough. Michael Guido's not good enough. Nobody's good enough. Jesus was good for us. He was perfect in every way that we failed. And when you give your life to him, you're not just praying a magical formula to get out of the bad place and into the good place. No, you're saying, God, I know I'm not good enough. I repent of my sin and I ask that Jesus be perfect for me. And if you're truly a Christian, here's the good news. When you stand before God at judgment, when you have, your spirit has separated from your body, and you, you've gone into his presence and then Christ comes back and you get a brand new glorified body and you stand before God, you don't have to have any fear because God will look at you covered in the blood of his son and he will say, perfect, come home. It's time to come home. That's eternal life. It's a relationship with Jesus who took care of all the moral requirements for us to be with a holy God who wants to be with us forever. And if we don't, here's the problem. When I ask someone, are you saved? And they, they talk about the cross, but they don't talk about Jesus being perfect for us. If we don't get that first part, not only does the cross not make sense, but the second thing is you and I are gonna try to be good enough. And we never can be. And I hear faithful Christians say things like, I, don't, I just don't know. How do I know that I know that I know that I'm going to heaven? Did I live a good enough life? I remember years ago uh, when Rusty Beasley passed away. And we had his funeral service at the gymnasium, at the school system. And uh, I was sitting with a man. Uh, he's not a member of this church, but he's probably related to about 50 people in this church. So I'm just not going to mention his name, but he's not a member of this church. But he and I were sitting together. I know this man to be a Christian. And we were walking back to the parking lot. And he was talking about just what a good person Rusty Beasley was. And Rusty was a genuine believer. I know you spent a lot of time with him, Ryan. He, was just, he just had an awesome heart. Knew Christ, loved Christ. Nobody in this room would doubt Rusty's in the presence of Lord Jesus right now. But we were walking back to the car and he just grabbed me and he just said, how do I know I'm good enough, Bo? How do I know I'm good enough for heaven? How do I really know that I know that I know that I'm going there? And I looked at him and I said, you have five minutes. And I said, you've, you've got to hear me. Heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for forgiven people. There's only one person who's good, and that's Jesus. But he makes us good by his blood. 
He earned that through 33 years of perfect moral living on our behalf. So I want you to hear that today. Now, the other question that comes up a lot, and Paul knew this because it's in the Bible, you say, well, if Jesus did everything to declare us perfect, if we're already seen as perfect in the eyes of God, then I can live the rest of my life the way that I want, and I'm still going to go to heaven, so why does it matter? Well, Paul knew you were going to ask that question. Paul said, should, should, uh, we should continue sinning that grace may abound by no means, because here's the thing. If you truly love Jesus and you have his spirit inside of you, you hate that sin as much as he does. And you put that to death like he's telling you to do. And you want to, with the power of the Holy Spirit, become more and more and more like Jesus because you love him, because you want to be like him, and because you want to bring an offering to him. When you and I die and we stand before Jesus and we bow at his nail-pierced feet, we cannot add to our salvation and we cannot take away from our salvation. But you and I want to have something that we can lay at his feet as an offering, our life, and say, thank you for what you've done for me. Again, you can't earn it and you can't lose it. It's a gift. But don't you want to say thank you? Well, you say thank you by living a holy life. You say thank you by sacrificing your time to serve him and his church. You say thank you by sacrificially giving and going and doing and, and fulfilling the mission that God's given. And so that when you come to him and you, and you just lay before him, you just say, Lord, I know I can never earn what you did for me, but here's my offering. I give it to you to say thank you for what you have done. That's why we have to be a church that's on mission. That's why we cannot sit in the pews. We have to pray, we have to give, we have to go, and we have to send people to accomplish the mission. Because there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus, who don't know eternal life, and who will stand before God. And they'll have to give an account for their own life, and that life not being good enough, and they'll not be with God for eternity. And we only have a short time. We only have a short time to get that word out. So, Jesus is the giver of eternal life. By faith, he's given us the gift of eternal life. And through his righteousness, he has provided the guidelines of eternal life. So let me sum this up in one sentence. So Cedar Street, as you hear Jesus pray, do you know for sure that you have eternal life? Do you know for sure that you have eternal life. I put 1 John 5, 13. The apostle John, of course, wrote that letter the same reason he wrote the gospel of John because he says these words. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know. So the question is, do you know that you know that you know? And let me boil it down for you to kind of sweep away all the incorrect criteria that you may be using. Do you know that you have eternal life? Don't trust in a prayer. Do you know that you have eternal life? Don't trust in church attendance. Do you know that you have eternal life? Don't trust in spiritual gifts. Do you know that you have eternal life? You trust in Jesus Christ alone. You know that you yourself are not good enough but you know that you've given your life to him because he is your Lord, he is your God, he is your friend, and he's the one that you walk with every day. You know, I, I love the, the song that Jody chose, Abide, today that he sang. Do you know in the past month, there have been several mornings that I've struggled to get out of bed. It's been a tough season. 
And I've taken that exact song, Abide, and I play it. I have a Bluetooth speaker in my bathroom. I play it when I'm in the shower. And in that one part of the song, the singer sings, I depend on you. I depend on you. I depend on you. That's abiding. That's having eternal life. Jesus, I don't know how I'm going to get through this day, but I have you for the next hour. You've given oxygen to my lungs. You've provided what I need. I don't know what's going to happen next, but I know if I have you, Jesus, I have eternal life. That's the Christian walk, abiding, bearing fruit, pressing into, having union with Christ who loves you. Gosh, if he could be here for one second, if Lord Jesus could be right here in the flesh, radiating that love, you wouldn't think about a problem in the world. You will be in his presence, and it will be sooner than you think. Hear the words of Jesus who says, this is eternal life, and give all of it to him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, life begins and ends with you. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are our creator. You are our redeemer. You are sustainer. You are ruler. You are judge. You are friend. And you are constant companion and our bridegroom for all of eternity, Lord. And you let us know your heart when you let us lean into you with this beautiful prayer in John 17. Lord, this world is so distracting, but this world's a counterfeit. It's falling apart around us, and it will not cease to exist when you come back, but you'll take it and make it new. But for those of us in this room that know you, Lord, we already have eternal life. It's already started. You already are living in the inside of us through your Holy Spirit, and you are already changing us from the inside out. For those of us who are truly saved, Lord, help us to abide. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room who does not yet know you as, as Lord and Savior and God, Lord, overwhelm them with your Holy Spirit until they finally throw the white flag and say, I'm done. I tried to do it on my own and I can't. I want God, but I'm not good enough or holy enough in my own strength, but I will be in Christ. Lord, move in their heart that they would confess with their tongue that Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised you from the dead that they would be saved. Oh, Lord, we thank you for eternal life. Live that life in us and through us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.